Hello and welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Well, we've made it to the end of the year and what a year 2023 has been. We've seen the rise of generative AI, rising interest rates, impacting businesses, and in some cases, media investment, a tough and transitioning market for TV, the 50th anniversary of commercial radio coinciding with a burgeoning podcast market, ourselves included, years of quote-unquote efficiency at major tech companies, a succession plan for Rupert Murdoch, and of course, Elon Musk dominating headlines, much to my personal chagrin. There was so much that happened this year, and here with me to unpack all of it, I am joined as usual by my colleagues Omar Oaks and Ella Sagar, as well as guest Cass Naylor, who's back on the podcast in a very special episode to end the year. We will be going toe-to-toe to debate the question, what was the biggest story in media this year? Regular listeners of the podcast and readers of The Media Leader will know that we each have been reporting on specific verticals this year. I cover social media and publishing. Ella covers audio and out of home. Omar has been covering TV for us. So while I do expect some bias perhaps to come into those answers, I have not told anyone here they need to pick stories from their verticals as whatever is biggest. But I do expect there will probably be a fair few honorable mentions of that sort listed in the discussion. And Cass... Uh, welcome, first of all. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, as a third-party guest, uh, you will also share what you felt were the biggest stories that especially we might be missing in this conversation. And, of course, you'll be acting as a judge to decide, based on the arguments we put forth, which story you would submit as the biggest of the ones that we mentioned. So yeah, uh, I do note that biggest is a very inexact term. It can mean most consequential or most talked about or read about. Um, I've allowed that to be up to interpretation as you could probably hear from those little giggles in the background. Um, So hopefully that'll lead to some interesting inputs. Um, So let's get right to it. Uh, Omar, I wanted to start with you. Tell me what in your mind was the biggest story of 2023. And if you have any other honorable mentions, feel free to list them as well. Oh, I'm going to sound really, really obvious, but I'm going to say AI, artificial intelligence. Now, I know, I know, anyone listening to this is going to think, oh, hype, you've you've fallen victim to the hype machine, AI. Um, and I, I did write a piece about this during the year, um, about how I thought the really interesting thing about artificial intelligence, generally in society, before I get on to media and advertising, is that um, a lot of the tools that we've seen, regenerative AI, ChatGPT, etc., they're not actually that new. If you look at some of the applications of chatbots, for example, that brands have been able to use on Facebook Messenger, um, a lot of the technology that powers that um, is not too dissimilar from what people are using every day um, for ChatGPT and the like. Um, but what's been happening now, since it was really popularized at the end of last year, ChatGPT, is we're all kind of talking about it. And we're all, in effect, training ourselves how to use AI. And that's the crucial step in its development, is is actually the humans being trained to use AI, not so much the AI being trained by the humans. So I think that's a, that's a slow burn thing that's been happening, which has been really important. Um, but specifically for media advertising, um, there are so many big stories which happened this year, which actually were underpinned by AI. So if you look at the writer's strike, which happened for months in Hollywood in the US, um, a lot of that is actually the threat of um, content creators using AI tools, um, which has threatened a lot of the traditional um, ways of writers um, working for scripted television, movies. It's frankly very difficult to demonstrate value and the residuals um, existing structures when you've got technology as a part of that. 
Um, we've seen it in press and publishing where some of the biggest publishers in the world have taken steps to actually protect their intellectual property. We have to remember that, sorry to ch pick on ChatGBT, but ChatGBT and other tools, they're mining content that a lot of it has been created by journalistic publications as well as academic literature. Um, and where is the compensation for that? And that's going to be, that's a huge story, which has really taken off this year and is going to be a big part of the future where we all have to think about our digital identities and who owns that and how much do they own and how do we get value for that? That's something in society we've only begun to talk about. It's a huge, huge story. And finally, I mean, I know we're not, this isn't like an, an award show or we don't do kind of media owner of the year or things like that. But I think we have to talk about meta specifically and why Meta has had such an amazing year. They've laid off loads of people. They've cut costs quite dramatically. Um, but yet the revenue has gone up significantly as well, which means huge profits. What's going on at this company? I think at the beginning of the year, there was still a lot of talk about winding down the metaverse, which was a talk about last year. And frankly, a lot of the products weren't working very well because Apple in particular had this um, IDFA restrictions. You couldn't target people on Apple devices, Facebook products, as well as you could on Android. And over the course of 2023, my understanding is AI has been a big part of the answer is, is how they've solved that problem, which is why Meta has been the runaway media owner of the year, in my view, and AI is a huge part of it. So whether it's you know, the way we're kind of talking about tech society, whether it's the future of content creation and whether it's the business of online media, I think AI has been the biggest story of the year. Mm. Yeah, I was going to mention AI as well, of course, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if all of us had had that on our list in some capacity. One thing that you didn't mention that I did want to bring up, though, is the uh, concern around AI generated misinformation and disinformation. Mm. Um, and I'm curious, Cass, perhaps you, you might have uh, something to offer on that. I mean, you talked about it on the podcast before that this is a major concern. Um, all the publishers that I've spoken to are obviously very concerned about this, but we just had James Fleetham on the podcast from, from The Guardian, and he almost saw it as not a positive for society, but perhaps a, a positive for news publishers that do have really trusted brands. If you have a, a flood of misinformation online, which um, I would certainly expect next year in the run-up to lots of elections around the world that uh, news sites should be more supported or more people will want to go to them because what you can trust becomes more valuable. Uh, I'm curious, Cass, if you had any further input. Yeah, I think, yeah, so we did touch on this quite extensively last time I was on. Um, and naturally, this, the pace of change feels like it's just exponentially getting like more and more crazy. I saw yesterday a demonstration of Google's new model, Gemini, mm. and the things that it can do. It can do text to video. It can do, you know, give it image prompts and it will produce you video content. It, it's multimodal. So it can now, you know, the capabilities of it are astonishing. And I do, obviously AI is the kind of elephant in the room with all of this. Um, and a very, very strong contender out the gate for the bigger story, definitely, insofar as how much it touches on everything else. But certainly around the misinformation, disinformation point, I hope, and to your point, Jack, I hope that it, um, it forces people to become more discerning consumers of content online. We spoke last time about watermarking and this attempt um, to identify AI-generated content on the production side. But I think I might have mentioned this last time, but I've developed my thinking since then. 
um, spotting this content and identifying what is AI generated and what is human generated is going to become an essential part of digital literacy for everybody in the same way that spotting a scam email is going to be. Anybody who works in a corporate environment will have done sort of uh, anti-phishing training where they tell you to you know spot the questionable things in the subject lines or whatever. Um, spotting AI-generated content, I imagine, will become a corollary of that. It will have to be because, obviously, given the scale of how much it can interfere with public conversation around electoral cycles, we have a substantial risk there. And I hope that one of the side effects of that is that people become more um, better to identify, easier to identify. Yeah, and it's happening everywhere. I mean, even last weekend, literally, I was at home um, reading my daughter a story, and she was she went to a birthday party recently, and in the party favors bag, this book was in it, and I read it for the first time. And I haven't researched it, but I'm pretty suspicious that it's an AI generated book. At the back, it's a it, it, the story was like happy and trunky, and the images were like really weird. It looked like an AI had created it, mm. and the story. It was a children's book and it was fine. My daughter liked it, but it seemed a bit weird and generic. And at the back, it said, um, published in Great Britain by Amazon. And and the back page was like a, a, a note from the author. And it was like, hello, my name is John Young. And this is my email address. And this is the first children's book I've ever written. And if you really like it, please support me. And I just thought the whole thing looked really weird. So in terms of your mm. point, I think stuff like that is going to happen more and more and more because the barriers to entry of publishing for example are so much lower so anyone can use this stuff and just do it so consumers are going to have, be, have to be more discerning but where is the government advice Who, who's going to help us i think the eu lawmakers are just about to they're kind of bringing in or debating laws for ai but if something's moving so fast it can only be reactive as we've discussed on the podcast before you can't really be make a proactive law about ai if you don't know what the new capabilities are going to be even next month or mm. next year, uh, where are we going to be talking about AI this time next year? I think we probably are. Mm. Mm. Which is very different from the metaverse, yes. which which was the big story uh, oh, similar last year. And and I don't, I mean, I think I've written a story or two about it this year, but it's no one even really wants to talk about the metaverse outside of crypto bros or, yeah. or what have you. You mentioning it just then was the first time I've heard the words metaverse in about six months. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah, we never did launch that NFT, did we? Mm. <laughs> you're gonna have trading cards of the three of us and you, you can buy a pack and you'll either get omar jack or, or ella and then or Cass. maybe we could we could add some columnists in, and there you go but yeah. it'll be virtual Chris, mm. christmas gift yeah yeah Stocking for later. Chris, christmas uh 2024 perhaps God, i'll be haunted by the nft of me that's made <laughs> <laughs> um ella i want to turn to you now what was in your opinion the biggest story of, in 2023 and then other honorable mentions you may have had yeah, this was a tough one. I was going through this most read of 2023 of our articles and it was a real spread of different topics. Um, I thought Elon Musk would feature more highly in the top 25, 50 articles, but maybe people are not so uh, interested in reading about the latest scandal. So that is obviously something that's been punctuating the whole year since he acquired Twitter in October, I think it was last year. Um, I was Obviously, as an audio person, you did say there were going to be biases. So the most read story this year was about Ken Bruce and his first uh, rage art. When he left the BBC after 31 years and joined uh, Bauer on Greatest Hits Radio. And so that might seem like a small, like a talent move story. Or is that a really big media story? And I was thinking about it and that it ties into a few different things. That commercial radio overtaking the BBC in terms of share, reach, 
hours and and having very kind of consecutive quarters of success when every every quarter every rage are which is the radio audience listening figures it says commercial radio new record commercial radio new record and then ken bruce who's bbc radio 2's darling moves over adds a million listeners in his first rage are and then more than doubles the audience like it's 124 percent growth year on year in the next rage are and there's that follows Emily Maitlis and John Sopel leaving the BBC to go to Global as along with Lewis Goodall for the news agents, Andrew Marr on LBC. So there's a BBC idea. So that that it all ties in together, commercial radio, what's happening at the BBC and and everything in that space. And I, I know you also uh, uh, write about Out of Home as well. I just want to ask, what, what was the big story in, in Out of Home this this year? Out of Home surpassed the 2019 revenue figures for Q3. And I think I would club together Out of Home and Cinema that, that as a kind of, and I would actually put it under the umbrella of kind of Barbenheimer and how they both seem to be really making a comeback after the pandemic and coming back in a big way. So Cinema um, is now going to have its first £1 billion year at the box office since 2019. And Out of Home is on that same kind of track so I think and that Barbenheimer was such a it was in July August and it was such a moment and the, the power of marketing and every, and it just had that uh it was a hype but um and I, I think every year there is going to be a film it's like Barbie saved cinema or la- like you know last year it was Top Gun saved cinema but it did have more of a phenomenon than maybe pre- previous movies had in other years Maybe I shouldn't mention this, but I, 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 I'm going to anyway. Um, an, an honourable mention for Out of Home, I think, should be um, the creation of Play Out. And I say maybe you shouldn't mention it because um, Vested Interest, our parent company, Ad Wanted, um, is providing the technical support for this project. But it's really important for outdoor in the UK. All the, out, the major outdoor media owners in the UK have come together um, under a single tracking system for advertising on digital and offline posters and screens. Um, and it's really important that they've done that for the first time. So as the whole industry is moving towards this holy grail of cross-media measurements, um, out of home, it could be actually the big story of 2024, um, how this comes to pass, and just a lot more transparency and effectiveness in terms of out-of-home advertising. I, I have to also mention, uh, while we're on the t- subject of out of home, because I know a lot of our uh, most read articles this year, as I also uh, looked at that, Ella, uh, related to fake out of home. Um, this was a big story for us, especially in the early fall period. Um, Omar, I, I want to get you know give you the opportunity to get your licks in. I mean, what do you think about fake out of home? It was a big story. It's kind of related to AI as well. I suppose that can make it a lot easier to generate very quickly these sort of mock-up images that are not real but look like real billboards um what did you think of that development this year well there was a picture of me on our website of um, me naked in the middle of um, oxford circus playing the guitar that you made that that i made (laughs) (laughs) how does one prompt that (laughs) uh yeah I, i made it not an ai um and what was i doing so what has been happening this year is a lot of brands have been trying to be creative on social 
and actually using outdoor to do that. So we had Maybelline create this fake tube ad. A lot of you will have seen it. Listeners will have, will have seen it where the tube carriage has some fake eyelashes and it's coming down the track. And then this mascara brush comes down and is, you know, touching up its mascara and it looks fantastic, but it never happened. It was fake. It couldn't happen. If you think about it for two seconds, logistics involved. And we've seen um, lots of brands do it. Um, so there's something interesting happening with not just brands doing it, but also just kind of like fan, fan arts, content creators doing it because brands are recognizable. Why are they doing it? Because out of home, if you actually um, have the credibility of putting out a message on a poster like that, um, that you are actually showing to the world, look at our brand, look at what we're doing. It's not just something that's cool creatively, but we're actually spending money on it. We're legit, right? It's, just, it's the same for all kind of mass media advertising. It's that seal of credibility when you're actually putting your message on a mass broadcast platform like that. Um, what since happened and why I mocked up a picture of me kind of in the middle of the street naked doing something is because some brands have taken this way too far. And they're actually just bullshitting people, frankly. Um, so you could argue that Maybelline has done that, but um, it went a bit too far when this one kind of small London brand um, gym box um, just sent us a press release saying, "Hey, look, we've we look at um, look at this ad that we've done on the top of a London bus," and we ended up writing a story about it because it seemed quite novel right? Uh, oh, that's interesting. You don't see that every day. We since learned that that's impossible. Transport for London confirmed that you can't buy an ad on the top of a bus. Um, so it's not just they mocked up something. They actually went around telling journalists that they had done something. And there's an important distinction between concept, fan art, look what the world could look like versus look what we did. Because you're claiming that credibility when you didn't pay for it. And in similar to what Cass just said about being discerning um, consumers when it comes to AI and misinformation, journalists have to be um, taking the lead on this. We're supposed to be those the arbiters about what's truth and what's not, what's credible and what's not. And, you know, we were had, I was quite open and honest about that, which is why I wrote a column and I created that picture. And I think we, it, it's incumbent on us to say we got it wrong. This is why. And we need to call it out when people are deceiving us. Yeah, I remember that very clearly. And then following up and finding out more about fake out home and the legalities of it, because there are certain legal uh, implications if you are trying to pass off something as being having been on uh, a, a certain platform and things when it didn't actually happen. And kind of because there are sort of two reputations involved there. There's like the brand itself and there's the media media owner and so if TFL, it makes it look like TFL had run the ad when they hadn't, it has consequences. So that that was, and in the industry, when I've been speaking to people, nearly everybody agrees, it's not out of home. It's online, it's social, but yeah. it is kind of, it is flattering in a sense because it is using out of home power and credibility, but it is not true out of home. And it would be much better if people did it for real. Can I add something on out of home? Because I think there's two, there were two stories this year in particular that I found quite interesting um, about essentially the point at which out of home or advertising needs to, needs to stop transgressing into people's lives. There's a first point, which is when Burberry bought the right to have all the roundels changed at new, uh, I think it was at Bond Street leading to great confusion for people who were just well-meaning people trying to find Bond Street. Not entirely <laughs> sure why they might want to do that, but people, you know, people do that. Um, and uh, there was a big conversation about how appropriate it was that TFL even offered that spot. 
because you know at that, at that point you're starting to mess up people's day with a you know just to sort of have a brand presence um the second one is uh the other elephant in the room for me which is the orb mm. um and all the conversation about uh, how appropriate it is to have what will essentially be a gigantic advertising billboard in the middle of a in the middle of a regenerating area that could do with you know housing and, and things like that because that was also the same time that I think either Houston or Waterloo updated their big screen so there's actually very little space for train times and lots of space for advertising so that's sort of triggered this conversation about how far advertising in a physical form should actually penetrate into the private life. I don't necessarily have a view on it yet, but it's an interesting story, I think, that will become more more prevalent as we go into next year, especially around elections. And it's is it the, the, the Orb, if I'm not mistaken, it's the same company that had the Las Vegas Sphere? Yeah, Madison was, Square Gardens. Yeah, Madison Square Gardens, and it was going to be... I think in, yeah, it was, it, and they'd been campaigning, residents have been campaigning for years and years to stop it from happening because of all the light pollution and everything that was going to be happening. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. This is a uh, a massive, very technically complex um, venue that was supposed to be built. The original one, uh, a larger version rather, has been built in Las Vegas. And it kind of suits Las Vegas because it's this big, showy sort of centerpiece bit. And it's in the middle of a bunch of freeways. Whereas the one they were building in in Stratford, which view listeners will know is the area that where they we hosted the Olympics. Um, and it's a kind of up and coming area. But the bit they were planning on putting it in was just very bizarre and inappropriate. And I think the Greens, uh, the local Greens in the East End, um, kind of led the opposition to the planning permission, which was then blocked by the mayor. Uh, Michael Gove then intervened, but I don't think he's actually intervening that much now because even Madison Square Garden said, we don't want this anymore because it's become too politically hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just a final point on that. It's it's worth remembering that um, Transport for London before the pandemic, um, it was becoming very proactive in talking about its status as an advertising company. Um, because revenue leading up to the pandemic had gone up quite a lot year on year for advertising, the advertising estate. Um, so clearly revenue fell off a cliff for Transport for London, had to be bailed out by the government for obvious reasons during the pandemic. As things have gotten back to normal, in air quotes, uh, I haven't followed this closely since, but Transport for London will clearly be looking to beef up the advertising estate Hence projects like the Orb, hence questionable um, activations like what you've seen at Bond Street. Um, This could also be a big story for 2024 in terms of Transport for London has financial difficulties and will be using advertising to make that up. And its contracts, their uh, tube and bus contracts are both up at the same time, which has never happened before. Mm. So that that pitch will be happening in 2024, but then it will be decided in 2025 and the network rail, also that pitch will be coming out next year. So those are sort of Oof. rumbling on. Yeah, big, big years. All right. I want to take back the floor and, and give my turn for, for what I think was the biggest story of the year. I have a few honorable mentions. Um, the biggest story of the year in terms of airtime, at least, as Ella uh, mentioned just earlier, was almost certainly Elon Musk ruining Twitter. Um, it has been an absolute 
dumpster fire this year i think you called a bin fire is that correct is that what you say yeah here? okay although i found dumpster myself fire. saying dumpster fire quite a lot i feel like i'm, I'm importing <laughs> oh, that yeah, now. yeah bin fire yeah american culture is just coming for you guys i'm so <laughs> sorry um but it has been uh, awful i mean I, I would say it was the case even before musk told advertisers to go fuck themselves now we don't have a clean rating on this podcast sorry about <laughs> sorry, that kids. sorry kids you get demonetized <laughs> <laughs> i said on the podcast last week um that i expected twitter uh with now X to be basically the equivalent of Parler or Truth Social within about a year's time in terms of user base and ad spend. And then just a few days later, he was hosting, uh, he being Elon Musk, was hosting a discussion with Andrew Tate and Alex Jones and Vivek Ramaswamy. Mm. Um, so I would say that's uh, accelerated uh, even just in the past week uh, in terms of the timeline where I probably think that that, that will come. Um, and then, of course, you had threads talk about, I mean, you mentioned Meta having a great year. Not only do they have a great year business wise, but they're also like stealing twitter's lunch with threads that seems to be the, the main competitor people seem to be going to um, they haven't introduced advertising on the platform yet but i would expect that to come if not next year than the year after um, but as much as twitter and musk have dominated headlines i don't actually think the story is that consequential uh, we published numerous stories this year about how twitter isn't really that important for most advertisers um, so there's been a lot of noise about it but i wouldn't say it's necessarily the biggest uh, most consequential story of the year um, some other honorable mentions I do want to get to give airtime to uh, Rupert Murdoch stepping down uh, as chairs of News Corp, Fox Corp, um, and giving his crown to Lachlan. Um, this, funny enough, uh, aligned with the end of Succession, which is its <laughs> own amazing big media story. What an amazing show that was. Um, but, you know, big story that Rupert's doing that, but he still has a lot of sway, clearly, um, a lot of influence, probably will until he passes away. Um, so... Uh, it doesn't seem, and it also doesn't seem like Lachlan wants to make any major changes uh, that we know of yet. So I think this is something that will develop more perhaps next year. Um, a big related story, of course, uh, this is more U.S. specific, but I have to mention it. Fox News dealing with defamation lawsuits over lies related to the 2020 presidential election, going into a presidential, uh, presidential election in the U.S. next year, but also just elections around the globe next year. This is something to be keeping an eye on in 2024. They settled, Fox settled with Dominion Voting Systems for $787 million earlier this year, and there's still a lawsuit with Smartmatic ongoing. So we'll see that number probably come through, assuming well, there's no settlement. It's good to know you can get sued for defamation in the U.S. Is Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's very difficult, and it, obviously that so that led to a, a settlement as opposed to a, you know, taking it to court. I think it actually, if it went all the way to court, I don't know if uh, Dominion would have won that lawsuit, given the U.S. does have very open freedom of speech laws. It would have not been an open and shut case necessarily, but uh, I think Fox made the decision that, going to trial and, and having more you know secrets aired basically through discovery yeah, what, was what bad. Would the damage to the share price have been relative to how right. much they would have settled yeah right again that's a bit u.s specific bringing it back to the uk another big story telegraph is being put up for sale that's ongoing so i didn't want to give it a full mention but that could have a, a huge implication for the state of news publishing in the uk uh, and, and around the world as well because a lot of british publishers are looking to expand uh, especially into america and other other regions uh, the interesting thing about that, um, Redbird Media, the Abu Dhabi-backed investment company, which essentially striking this deal to buy back the Telegraph, um, news just broke um, yesterday as we record this that um, they're, they're hoping to buy all three media, which is the TV production group that um, ITV tried to buy um, but decided not to earlier this year. Um, so who knows what's going to happen in Telegraph? 
next mm. year. Yeah. Again, so lots of things to watch. I just wanted to mention them because they started as big stories this year. Um, but I would say the most consequential uh, news story, if I could call it a news story, I suppose a broader trend is the sort of contentification of media, if I can coin a term that I may have been coined Ooh. by a million other people before me. Um, you know, short form video became extremely, extremely popular this year. Um, I've written about TikTok a lot, uh, including a, a recent op-ed that I would recommend you go read. So if you want my personal opinion about uh, TikTok, you can you can have it there. Um, but the popularity of short form video, not just for entertainment, but also for news is a really, really big story. Um, just in the U.S. market, 43% of users now say they get their news from TikTok. That's up from 33% just last year. I think that's uh, a big concern mm. personally. Uh, you know, it certainly risks the sustainability of written journalism if you're competing for attention with, you know, a quick, uh, automatically served to you uh, a minute or less of whatever quote unquote news can be served in that amount of time. Publishers are going to are embracing that. Uh, I've spoken to Don Williams at uh, Mail Metro Media, and they've definitely made that a big uh, part of their strategy going forward. Um, but I would expand out contestification, not just to social media, but sort of more broadly. I feel like this year we saw a lot of uh, really bad Marvel movies that didn't do so well. And we're starting to see the sort of limits of treating artistic endeavors in media as just all the same, like equally valuable content. And we're starting to see pushback now from people in the media industry, but from journalists uh, to that. But I think this is kind of the way the world is going. And it was I feel like 2023 was the first year where we saw a real big shift where TV companies are now embracing this type of content. HBO turned into HBO Max, which is now just Max. Um, and there's a lot of business pressures that are causing all of that. Um, and Omar, I know you, you reported on uh TV throughout the year. I mean, maybe you have something to add to this as well. But I just see this as a as a really big, really big development. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I wrote probably actually maybe my favorite column that I wrote this year, and um, it didn't involve a, a naked picture of myself. Um, was um, <laughs> um, where I was exploring this idea about as TikTok becomes more popular, as YouTube Shorts become more popular, whether a whole generation of people going forward are just not consuming traditional forms of content, you know, 30 minute hour long television movies, as you mentioned, in the same way that actually we're becoming um, more comfortable with just short form snackable content all the time. And what that's doing to consumer tastes. Um, I think, again, that's something which is happening before our eyes and we haven't really got to grips with it. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, what's the big, what's been the biggest story in TV this year? I guess you, you can't, it's hard to look past Netflix and what's been happening. So we talked before in the previous episode about the future of TV advertising global conference that we had and Netflix, what they said and maybe didn't say, um, check back that previous episode. Um, but yeah, it's, they launched an ad tier at the end of 2022. The, the short takeaway is it hasn't gone that well. It's quite expensive to buy. Media buyers I've spoken to at agencies say they describe it as like a vanity thing that they might buy in the plan, but don't really look at it as something that's effective or really um, impactful as incremental um, audience. Um, the Microsoft revenue guarantee, it was being renegotiated. It was reported. They're actually publicly Netflix talking about developing tools in-house. So, you know, already that distance between the Microsoft on the tech stack is forming. 
Um, and they've, as again, last night in the US, they've launched this engagement report where they've put out a load of information about um, how much, how many hours viewed, different titles. And there is much more information than any streamer has ever put out um, about what's going on at Netflix. And it's all in this effort to become more credible, more transparent for the advertisers community. They can't keep raising prices subscriptions. That's been the big story that's happened in streaming this year. All the streaming, all the streamers, the subscription prices have gone up. And that's because interest rates have gone up and they need the returns now. Um, it's not just enough to grab market share. That's why them, Disney Plus, have launched these ad tiers. Um, and it's very difficult for them. And they get the long-term trajectory of these companies has to be, if they want to be serious advertising players, is to get involved with joint industry currencies. We've had this in the UK for 40 years. It's worked very well. Netflix, as much as your engagement report is a good thing, it's more information, it's still not third-party verified. And if you want to be taken as seriously as regional broadcasters in the UK, like ITV, Channel 4, Sky, etc., you're going to have to get involved with Barb and joint industry currencies. What was your question? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I wanted to know a little bit about more about the TV market. So uh, done, done, <laughs> done, and dusted. Uh, Cass, you've heard uh, our arguments. I want to give you space. I'm sure we've missed a number. I mean, it's, it's a whole year worth of stories, but I'm sure we've missed a lot. And I want to make sure it, before you judge what we've presented, uh, what you might think uh, we missed from the well, past year. I'm going to come back to the Twitter point. But from a slightly different perspective, less about the nature of it as an advertising space, more about the what Elon Musk ostensibly wanted it to be, which is this idea of it being a public town hall. Um, and the decline in the quality of uh, the moderation on the platform, but also the content on the platform, the people that he's brought back um, and, you know, the the material that now kind of exists there really in your face because of the way that, you know, you know uh, technically the platform has, has changed, has had dramatic effects on its ability to be a kind of on the ground live news source, which would be of incredible value, or rather we're seeing just how valuable having something like that would be in the context of the current conflict in Gaza. Um, and a lot of citizen journalism as emanating from a place like what used to be from Twitter and the degradation of the platform as a space for that, I think will have very, very long tail consequences for um, citizen journalism generally, um, but also how we arrive at truth in very, very murky situations like these wars, like conflicts. So I think this sort of feeds into the broader the store, the big story for me, which I'm, I'm going to make a judgment for the, for the three of you, which is I think it's somewhere between Twitter and AI, but there is a broader theme here about, and we've already we've already cursed twice, so I'm going to curse for the third and final time <laughs> potentially. For it. um, it's this theme of end shitification, <laughs> the end shitification of the internet, and listeners can look that up. It's got a Wikipedia entry. It is actually a term. Um, broadly used to describe the, the, the move away from quality and the move towards um, revenue extraction at all costs. So, uh, you know, content gets shorter form and it gets more monetized. There is a move away from uh, content with nuance, uh, long form op-ed style consumption. We've been seeing that over a number of years. Um, but certainly the rise of AI and the potential impact that that can have on 
the uh, the dilution of good content online uh, and how much how much content are we going to eventually see that's going to be user generated and how much of it is going to be AI generated? It should be a massive concern for all the social media companies. I think we we might have mentioned it last time. The the media the social media companies have a vested interest in sorting this out because it will just damn it will just the quality of their product is declining every single day. And I suppose Musk is kind of just <laughs> doing this in a, a three times speed compared to the other ones, but. There's a there's a broader theme there, I think, about how we get at quality content or the decline of quality content in general. Uh, that's a story from a few years. But I think this year in particular, we've seen a few instances where we're really stepping over a precipice into a new phase of the Internet in general. How that impacts news, how that impacts creative output. That for me is like the the big story. Yeah, uh, that underpins a lot of even the big stories. And I think it will continue to be the defining story of the decline of the internet, essentially, over the next couple of years, I reckon. So so, so your your big story of 2023 is the end of the internet? My... <laughs> not, to, not to ring in the death of the internet, because I feel that even, even about Twitter, for instance. So I, I don't... I think that... The Twitter community or the people on there, and obviously, you know, there are many, many different communities on Twitter that previously weren't really interacting because the algorithm sort of kept them apart. Um, but I think that there will be some resilience in that user base. I don't think it will turn into a parlor or a true social just yet. Because um, I think a lot of people still like, I mean, I still like using it, even though it's become this sort of this right wing hellhole in certain places. But I think that we are we are at the beginning of the end of what we what we think is basically web two not to think that web three is the kind of the the current impression of what what web three is i don't think that's necessarily where we're going but i think web two as you know social media user generated content micro blogging massive amounts of data i think i think that's starting to starting to go away what it will be replaced by i don't know i'm hoping that uh, a proliferation of platforms if you know we've got your you know it's not just um threads but you've also got mastodon you've got blue sky um and i'm hoping other players will sort of jump into that mix and re-inject some competitiveness into the space which hopefully will have effects on quality um at least in the, the, the usual economic theory but yeah i just generally see like the slow but terminal decline of the internet we've all kind of grown up in Mm. up until this point yeah i i think that's really interesting and um, what what the big kind of story for me in my personal slash professional life is actually um deleting my twitter accounts and i just you know just hearing you talk about it Cass, i just feel so incredibly liberated i'm kind of like <laughs> stretching my yeah. arms right now because i just feel like I'm, I'm i just not part of that ickiness and just seeing my feed and all that horribleness and it just it had gotten really bad mm. it wasn't great before musk by the way um but let me I have a conspiracy theory, Jack. Let me okay, make. I'm really worried about this. Let though. me make the case for why Elon Musk is, in fact, the genius that he purports to be, and in a, like a Batman-style endeavor, he's actually taking one for the team globally. So everything that Cass has just been talking about, he is actually showing us how bad social media can be if you take out all the brand safety people, if you try, if you just bring back all the Donald Trumps and. Um, Kanye West of the world just to wreak havoc what you know how bad user-generated content can be because when you when you talk about 
YouTube and TikTok, I actually thinking about all the work that they do to actually um, create a better environment for content creators, to give them the tools, to give them the advice. They're incredibly helpful and they put on these massive events and they, they try and, I mean, you can argue whether it's good enough, but they try to improve the monetization, the rev share. Um, and I think about, I use YouTube all the time and I use it because there are incredibly good um, content creators on there. The broadcasters create really good short form versions of their broadcast content. Um, there's a lot of good stuff there. Hence my point about whether I'm my brain chemistry is being changed to kind of think that that is the normal video viewing habit as opposed to watching a 30 minute TV program. So maybe maybe Musk is actually he, he's being the hero that we deserve. Mm. The anti-hero. <laughs> Count, counterpoint Occam's razor it's um, astonishing to think like somebody it, it, I, I always find myself falling into the trap of thinking there must be some other there must be some four dimensional play going on that I'm just not seeing because at that at that scale of money and power there must be something else going on and I I find myself having to sell myself Occam's razor like it's probably this is, the actual answer is probably simpler than I'm that I'm that's one of it's one of the reasons I actually am a journalist because I've always kind of had this kind of fear that I've just like oh I'm I'm not a very smart person but I'm really curious I want to find out what's going on and you, you meet all these people in authority and it's like oh they must know what's going on and it's like someone like Elon Musk like what what you know he he must know what he's doing he can't be running this company into the ground and I'm reminded of this Chris, Christopher Hitchens um, he was giving a talk and I can't remember what it was in reference to but he just made this point so simply he was like. You know, I've talked to a lot of politicians, I've talked to a lot of so-called academic experts, and I have this conclusion is that most people in authority positions don't actually know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's all about the pretense of exuding confidence and competence. Um, and that's how society functions to a large degree. Mm. And I think um, you, we're seeing, um, maybe it's a Peter Principle um, writ large, but um, yeah, I, that's probably what is going on. He's, he's just incompetent. <laughs> Well, we've gotten very philosophical there toward the end, um, but I do want to—I do want to just touch one once more on that that last point that you brought up, Cass. Um, I would argue that the decline of the previous era of the internet that we've been in uh, is leading to also frayed communities and mm. frayed public discourse, um, and you see that especially around you know these big conflicts like in in Israel and uh, in, in Gaza, and that should probably concern everyone. And and advertisers uh, are. are very much a part of this as well. Uh, one great big example that we haven't touched on at, at all today, but uh, was a really big story in the first half of the year was the sort of Dylan Mulvaney response mm, yeah. and the lack of support for LGBTQ plus community from advertisers because of toxicity in public discourse, especially seen online. Um, and that has real world effects, not just online effects. So uh, there's there's a lot to sort of unpack in the inshitification of mm. the internet um, but I, I do love that word contentification probably won't catch on but but inshitification has already caught on so maybe I should have just gone with that instead of trying to be so oh, you can creative. say contentification on YouTube so that's probably got more longevity than <laughs> <laughs> right well look I, we will have to leave the conversation there but thank you all so much for joining me this is the last podcast of the year where uh, we three journalists and, and also Cass uh, will all be together on um, so I want to make sure I wish you all out there and also everyone in the room a very happy holidays and I want to sincerely thank everyone out there for listening 2023 was the year we fully launched the Media Leader podcast and since then our audience has grown substantially and we quite literally could not do that without the audience so from the bottom of our hearts thank you and uh, ta-ta for now we'll We'll see you in January. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. 
can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.